Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I bring you greetings from my government and the people of Zambia. Brought to you by Solus Nua in Washington, D.C., welcome to episode four of We Are the Makers. Our mission for this edition is to see out 2021 in some style, as we'd really like to put a crown on our year of private service broadcasting, or podcasting to give it its street name. Consequently, today we'll be reaching for the higher ground with the help of not one, but two of our favourite artists. Seriously though, I think it might actually be worth strapping up your seatbelts and holding on tight. A little safety notice because we're talking twice the energy and double the power this time around. Sure, there's a pair of them in it. My name is Donald Deneen, and in the absence of better qualified aviators, this is your captain speaking. We are the keepers, the keepers, the seekers, the seekers, the leavers, the leavers, the dreamers, the dreamers. We are the makers, the makers. So today I'm here in Limerick to find out everything I possibly can about the making of a unique short film which has arisen from a collaboration between two mould-breaking artists from the city, Denise Chyla and Brian Cross, better known as B+. The film is called Energy, a visual mixtape, and as subject matter for a documentary goes, it's highly charged, explosive material. This, for me, is the year's most vital work of art, and I'll explain how I came to see it and the enormous impression it made presently. Suffice to say for now that in physics, energy is the quantitative property that must be transferred to a body to heat it, and this film on the very same topic has illuminated the latter end of 2021 with incandescent light and no little heat. Now, I know I'm speaking about something most of you have yet to see, but I'm going to try to put you in the picture here. It is my job, after all. Sometimes the working part of artwork has a lot to do with timing. And the revelatory power of this particular creative intervention is very much of and for the moment we find ourselves living in here on this island of Ireland. And for our time in this place, new perspectives which carve out fresh routes to the waterfall are exactly what's required. Cutting an incisive path to the heart of serious matters requires intellect, sure, but without imagination, the best of intentions tend to get swallowed up and lost in the noise. Debates about who we are and where we are going dominate the airwaves and newspaper editorials, but more often than not, expend a ton of energy going round in circles, or indeed, absolutely nowhere. Unless the path to enlightenment is actually meant to be pockmarked with endless red cow-sized roundabouts, then I think it might be time to take a different route. And that's why we're here talking about this far-seeing cinematic take on what's going on. This film feels like a splash of cold water to the face initially and a permanent jolt to the senses thereafter. Its sharpness of focus puts media frenzies and their fuzzy logic in the halfpenny place. I'm honoured to be getting the inside track on the inspiration and production process behind its making. I am the child of the soil and of the sun. I am the continuation of a song of faith and power that my people have never stopped singing. 
Before we get right into the chat, first, a few words about the makers. If you've been alive to the new wave of great sounds coming from the southwest recently, you'll already know that Denise Chyla is a rapper, poet and writer born in Chikankata, Zambia and raised in Ireland. Her conscious music is a forceful blend of spoken word and rap, which has made landfall like a tidal wave here these past few years. Themes of identity, belonging and home are all given lyrical expression in her work. Truth is, we hadn't heard a voice like hers express feelings like these till now. A passion for justice and social change, in combination with extraordinary talent and a fierce commitment to her art, marks her out not just as a breath of fresh air, but a once-in-a-generation, game-changing creative force. In a short space of time, her music has made a huge impact, culminating in the awarding of the Choice Music Prize for Album of the Year to her debut mixtape, Go Bravely, this March. Yeah. Go Bravely. Hailing from the same city of Limerick which Denise has called home for the past decade, Brian Cross left there 35 years ago to study painting in NCAD. This was the first step on a journey undertaken in measures of giant leaps thereafter. By 1990, he was in Los Angeles, taking a postgraduate course in photography at the California Institute of the Arts. This was the door into those other worlds he would soon conquer and serve like royalty. By 1993, he had turned his doctoral thesis into a book. It's not about a salary, rap, race and resistance in Los Angeles. And this is where his work first came to my attention. As the presenter of a music television show, No Disco, at the time, I was doing my bit to get hip-hop onto the airwaves, so this book crash-landed like a comet on my desk at RTE. At last, someone was speaking my language in a voice I could understand with an entirely relatable accent. Over a quarter of a century later, its stature as a key reference point for the cultural study of a unique musical revolution has not just been cemented, but continues to grow. In this pioneering work of ethnomusicology, Cross traced the musical and intellectual lineage of rap music and explored in depth the nuanced styles, personalities and socio-political messages underpinning it. But he did much more than that. An indication of how firmly his finger was attached to the pulse of the community he was documenting was the extremely prescient inclusion of an appendix listing abuses by the LAPD between 1965 and 1991. Already, there were some deeper intentions evident beneath the foundations of mere documentation. In the foreword to the book, he talks about rap music as a way of delineating community and communicating history. Pull on that thread and you'll find it extends all the way through an insanely rich tapestry of almost three decades worth of frontline film and photography work, right up to his latest project and the present moment. Whether it's directing feature-length documentaries like Keepin' Time and Brazilian Time, shooting a multitude of short music films, or photographing rap kings and queens for breakfast, dinner and supper, the degree of intellectual rigour that underpins everything he does is what sets B-plus apart. And it's not just his art doing the talking, either. As a professor of visual arts at the University of California, San Diego, he occupies a unique space at the intersection of music documentation and cultural studies. I could go on listing his achievements, but an impression of the kind of heft he brings to the table is all we need to proceed. So on we go. 
Finally, a few words about the film itself before we dive into the chat. At just 15 minutes long, it contains a multitude. The film eulogises local spaces, including Ardnacrusha Power Station, Mount Trenchard House and People's Park, montaging archival and contemporary footage to form visual couplets marrying diasporan histories, racial discrimination and political ideologies, magic and music. I think a large part of its power stems from just how imaginative the format is. The beauty of the music and mesmerising effect of the montage doesn't mask the magnitude of these topical investigations, but rather helps find new ways to highlight and accentuate them. Unlike the straight-as-a-die section of the Shannon River, which is the source of Ardnacrusha and the spine of the film, the many twists and turns in the conversations I had with him and Denise about it make it a more meandering affair. So better to turn off the satellite navigator and surrender to the flow as we talk our way up and down some unknown roads. The day after I saw the latest version of the film in front of a rapt hometown audience at Limerick's Bell Table Arts Centre, I took a trip with B, Denise and the film's editor, Ross Constable, to some of the key spots which feature in it. We travelled out past the city walls and northeastwards along the River Shannon, through Ardnacrusha and onto Killaloo, where we boarded Brian's dad's boat for a trip across Loch Derg, surrounded on all sides by autumnal arborita, bathed in unexpectedly brilliant October light. We docked at the mouth of the beautiful River Scariff, and while the rest of the party went in search of pints on terra firma, we three conducted the first of two interviews on the making of the film and the stories behind it. So for the sake of the story, I'm going to say that conversation number one happened at sea and the second one on land, even though it was more of a freshwater situation we were wading in, to be honest. In order to equip you for some of the references ahead, it's worth noting that the ghost of Thomas Spring Rice looms large over proceedings, just like the monument in his honour towers over People's Park. He was elected Member of Parliament for Limerick in 1820 and represented the city till his retirement in 1839. His ancestral home is Trenchard House, which is now a direct provision accommodation centre of some ill repute. Direct provision is a system of asylum seeker accommodation used in the Republic of Ireland, which has been criticised by human rights organisations as illegal, inhuman and degrading. There are also references to some important visitors to the city. Sarah Bartman was an African woman who in the early 1800s was something of an international sensation of objectification. She was paraded around Europe as an exotic curiosity for exhibition and this tour included a trip to Limerick in 1812. Kenneth Kaunda was the first president of independent Zambia in 1964 who had paid a visit to Limerick a year earlier and returned after his inauguration to receive the freedom of the city on November 26th that year. I'll be back to offer up some more referential help before the dry land section, but for now, while still all at sea, some initial thoughts from Denise on where the dialogue began. It was kind of crazy because like the way we met is that we arranged to have a phone call um, and I felt really bad. I remember about rescheduling because my mom asked me to cook for her at the last minute. And so I was late 
And I was like, wow, this guy is going to hate me. Like, that's so unprofessional. His time is very precious. And this is B plus. Damn. Um, and then and then I was just like, I was frantically texting. I'm sorry, I'm going to be super late. Uh, I don't mean to be disrespectful. And he was like, no, just chill out. And then I <laughs> picked, I think I called you like maybe 30 minutes later, like still smelling of beans and rice. <laughs> and you were so chill. And I was just like, yo, this is not as scary as I thought it would be to talk to you. The truth is you also speak to my work in a way that feels profound and feels like it connects to my intention and why I want to do music, you yeah. know? And that's like really important to me because what I really hope doesn't happen is that I end up being understood as a person with a pop single um, that yeah. can be read at one layer only. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of on my mind at the time, like in a way that I was agonizing over that, you know, I wonder who hears my work and what they hear. Um, because, you know, when I released the dual citizenship EP, I got a lot of people messaging me with like very beautiful and very eloquent essays about their journeys and how they feel as people, mm-hmm. where they've been, where they want to go, um, what they've struggled with, you know. And that felt like, yo, this is exactly the place that I want to be. This is how I want to interact with people in relation to my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the beauty of Chyla is that it brought me into a, a place where I was speaking to different kinds of people. And it made me realize, oh, gosh, I can actually have I have the capacity to make a song mm-hmm. that exists in someone's life as a song. Um, but also the flip side of this is that, like, if you are the soundtrack to someone's life, uh, people receive you from the position that they're at, not where you're at. Yeah. You know, and then your work becomes something new, becomes something different. It becomes like, you know, a pop song that they heard on Spin 1038, like, you know, um, and then you become something new because mm-hmm. the wide majority of your audience are receiving you in a way that is, you know, like you're, you're the person who comes on in my car when I'm with my child yeah. going to work. And, um, and that's nice. You know, that's actually probably what's paying the bills. Um, but it's not what I wanted to do as an artist. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of getting sad and wondering, like, do I have to pivot really hard to be understood again as this person who can do this thing and this thing? And um, B was the person who first, like, kind of really spoke to that anxiety and was mm-hmm. like, chill out. The people who hear you, hear you, you know, like the people who hear you really do. And it's not lost that you're trying to make all these connections and build these bridges between worlds and ideas and thoughts and Mm. like thinkers and philosophers and pop culture references. Like, I hear you. I I see it. And I think it's special. And that's why I want to work with you. Well, I mean, for me, it was that, uh, you know, the music from Go Bravely obviously was 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 a, you know I mean, it's a super I mean it's enough to get me home on its own I mean it's a super impressive piece of work as mm. a body of work but then when you sit down and actually break bread with Denise what I start to realize is like oh my goodness this is just the tip of the you know I mean this is a boat that's okay it's gone out but the journey is you know this is going to be something very big and ambitious potentially and something very impressive ultimately and something that I I really felt committed to the notion that we need. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, and that's when I was kind of like, hmm, I could really, I could really, I could really do something here. Do you know, this, this, I could really actually make a proper contribution here and help mm-hmm. kind of flush out some of these ideas and, 
you know, be a, you know, an active participant in this conversation as a real conversation, you know? Yeah. Um, with the notion somehow that this is, that grow, go bravely is, is, was a, a incredible piece of work and a great lure, but it's only really the, the beginning, you know I mean? Really, and really, you know, when you, when you, you know, when you actually start to flush out the ideas and you listen to, to talk, you realize like, man, this is, you know, there's, mm. there's a ways to go yet. It's so interesting doing work and not knowing where it's going. Yeah. Because uh, this isn't something that like people make noise about in the same way that they make noise about a music video or a record dropping. No, for sure. You know? mm. But like I started as a writer and I know that this is going to be a very big part of my work for the mm. rest of my life. And it was Shane Curtin who first put me onto the yeah. notion that Kenneth Konda came to Ireland and in fact, he came to Limerick. And in fact, he went to the Ennis Road. And there are a lot of people in Limerick who remember being a part of a procession with him. Mm. Like, you know, like almost the flame bearers and like trumpeted his like arrival to the city. And he was given um, the honor of being a freeman of Limerick, yeah. you know, very keys to the city type mm. things, you know. And while he was here he set down the groundwork for a sort of diplomatic relationship with Ireland that ended with him saying, I'm as much a Limerick man as yeah. anyone else here, you yeah. know? And finding these ties is so important. Like, and it was really significant to me. It caused an emotional reaction because he's a person who, when my dad was a child, he would have gone to see him just drive down the street and, you know, wave his like, white glove and acknowledge people because he is considered the father of the Zambian nation as mm. it stands right now. He's the man who campaigned for and won the independence of our state. Mm -hmm. um, you I know, mean, you, you called him not just a freedom fighter, the freedom fighter you called him. Yeah. Of Zambia. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yet still just a man, you know, mm. uh, with politics that sometimes I didn't agree with. Mm -hmm. Um, and still the, the man who made a way for me to be in Ireland, speaking English, talking like this, the kind of um, autonomy that like not everyone is permitted the opportunity to develop. Just to flip it the other way is like, I think, you know, in the sense of understanding, let's say even Arden and Crusher or understanding just how important it was, you know, now that we're in this sort of centenary decade or whatever, but like somehow figuring out a way to get out from under the British um, sent a kind of, it's kind of a beam of light, you know, and when we think about people like Terence McSweeney, you know what I mean? Like the mayor of Cork who died on hunger strike and the influence that that had on, on Gandhi, which then ended up having influence on Martin Luther King, mm. which ended up, have an influence in the way that the, the the civil rights struggle begins in the North in the sort of mid to late 60s. Or you think about Marcus Garvey writing letters to Dev. And you think about these kind of ideas bouncing around back and forth around the world. We forget somehow that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're still engaged somehow in this. We did, you, we never disengaged from this. Like mm. we still have a role to play. We still have, you know, a, a part at the table, a place at the table. And the the, and it was that's what was so kind of poetic about um, 
and looking at, at, at Kenneth Cowanda, mm. seeing the footage of him, looking at the photographs of him in Limerick mm. and thinking about like, you know, this is part of a kind of larger conversation about colonialism, about, you know, because he was really coming to say like, he says, you know, later in that speech, like, yeah, more I, than, I watched it all yeah, this morning, actually. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you guys would, you guys would know yeah. what yes. it means. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and this is very important. Mm. It is. Forget this. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I bring you greetings from my government and the people of Zambia. These greetings naturally go to the president and the people of the Republic of Ireland. Mm. I often joke that, you know, if I'm going to live in a country of white people, I would, I need it to be white Irish people. Mm-hmm. I need that to happen because like, this is where, where, where else are you going to find a country of white people who understand like cultural genocide? Mm. Do you know, where else are you going to find a nation of people who've been through famine like orchestrated famine in a way that has decimated the population and cut the narrative of the country at its knees in a way that you've had to come back and rebuild from, from scratch while being gaslit by imperialism Mm -hmm. into believing that the beginning and the end of who you are starts with plantation and ends with your freedom story. Like, how do you begin to unpack that if not with someone else who knows that story and who cares about that story? Because this is my story also. Mm -hmm. And it is so fascinating to continually run into people who claim Irishness as a sort of like hiding place for white supremacist feeling, because this is where, this is where Every O'Hara in Boston says that they're from while they're cussing you out for being black. Do you know, what I mean, like this is where this is where white supremacists go to hide and say there are no black people in Ireland. And the narrative of blackness is so disconnected from this place that there is no possible way for you to find refuge here. So this is mine and mine alone and I can weaponize it against you. And that's not possible anymore. And, you know, also shout out to people like Liam Hogan who oh, devoted sure. their yeah. life's Super work yeah. to dismantling and unpacking things like this because this is also, like, I listen to him and I read his work the same way I read someone like Adrienne Marie Brown, you yeah. know? Like, there's this sort of communal, like, redemptive, radical healing work that comes with people who just want to tell you the truth. Um, not because they're trying to disrupt, but because the disruption is how they're finding healing within themselves and within their communities. You know, like you've been told one thing, this other thing is true. And if you can accept the truth of this thing, if you can move past the awkwardness of knowing that you've been fed lies, you can, you have the capacity to connect with so many more people. Um, with so many, so much more of yourself is available to you. Cause like some of the walls that you erect saying, this is not my story and I have no way to participate in your freedom struggle or your freedom triumphs because that's yours. And this is mine. When that breaks down, things create, things are created, you know? And actually this is why I love working with you because like, 
it's uh, very much apparent to me that the the relationship that we've had collaboratively is like a it's like its own healing ceremony, <laughs> you know. Like it's like its own moment of like the permissions that are granted um, to really go there and to say things plainly that in other areas of your life, you might have to obfuscate or navigate around because people don't have the references or because people are not ready to hear things or because it's difficult to just like pull someone by their lapels into the place that you're standing if they're not willing to come. It's such a beautiful thing, you know, like as far as I want to go, I I think that there are times when you would have been pushing me further, you know, and that's kind of wonderful. Like, it's like there is no stop until we have reached the natural conclusion of this thought, whatever is the fullest extent of our abilities. We go there. I reject shame. I reject the notion that I should feel guilty for defending myself, for demanding better for myself and the people I care about. I reject the notion that life should be lived in a submissive, apologetic way until we die and that's the only way we will achieve progress. I reject the notion that in order to do that, I have to perform as a certain kind of black person. I reject the notion that if I don't, I will lose everything. I reject that. I reject my own fear. I reject my own anxiety. And I also refuse to believe the words of people who make bad faith arguments or who willfully misunderstand the message that I have been harping on about ever since I touched the microphone. In many respects, I think the argument could be made, and I don't know, like, I'm, I'm gone out here now a long time, but certainly the argument could be made that even for us, we don't understand. You know, like, look, a very obvious example, you just talked about genocide and famine. When I was at school, all that was ever referred to as is the great shame. It was very little done to explain it. Okay, you might get the progressive or the Republican fellow that would tell you about laissez-faire economics. I remember that was about as deep as it got. And to me, I was like, wow, that's mad. But as far as, you know, understanding what happened here in terms of a certain kind of rational racism, rationalized scientific, quote unquote, racism, you know, a post-Darwinian notion. And understanding that in terms of the kinds of disasters that were happening, let's say in India at that time. The kinds of disasters are happening in Africa at that time. We don't see it. We weren't triangulated. We weren't able to. I remember Robert Bala came to the, co- to the College of Art and he said, we need to stop comparing ourselves to England and America. We start to need to start thinking of ourselves in terms of like Korea. We need to start thinking of ourselves in terms of Zimbabwe and Zambia. Zambia yeah. And I, I remember saying like, what a weird thing to say. Mm-hmm. But it was like nothing had prepared us even think in those terms we were only too busy looking back at the center do you know what i mean this is what happens like i what who's the man who wrote that book how the irish became white no ignative ignative yeah right that book 
I remember one of my lecturers referred to it in a lecture, right? And I went and I didn't read the whole book. I just read excerpts from it because I didn't have the money to buy it at the time. It changed how I related to Irishness. Like anybody who knows me would know that like I've never caped so hard for me as an Irish person. And so there, some pivot that happened between 2012 and 2019, right. you know, like, and, and it happened to be around the time that I landed in Limerick. And it was because at this point is when I started to in, interrogate, like really interrogate the idea of Irishness in a way that I was like, and what is it here that connects to me? Because I could leave tomorrow. I could go somewhere else in the world that seems to quote unquote, make more sense. And maybe be happier, you know, but there's something that's special about here. I've been here for a long time. Do I discard this? Why do I relate to people here more than anyone else in the world, really? And it's this thing, you know, it's this thing of like imperialism gaslights you and gives you amnesia. Mm. And its purpose is to disconnect you from other people with the same struggle so that you cannot mobilize Mm -hmm. and you cannot understand yourself in any way that is like that confronts or challenges the narrative of imperialism. You know, this is why even within black diaspora spaces, there are sometimes these hierarchies and like conflicts about who is black or who has like more entitlement or you know, are you African black? Are you Jamaican black? Are you African American black? Are you African Dutch? You know, like what is the black that you are and which is more legitimate? And it keeps you from understanding that actually the enemy is not from within, it's from without. And when you understand the enemy is from without, not within, you have the opportunity to find and build connections with other people who are able to actively dismantle. And it is possible to dismantle imperialism. I don't think we say that enough to each other. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah, like amazing. it's possible to dismantle this. This is why people devote their lives to doing it mm-hmm. because nothing lasts forever, not even pain, you know? And if it's possible to dismantle it, then actually I see Irishness as the fulcrum upon which racism falters very severely because there was a point when Irish people were not considered white. And there were negotiations that Irish people went through in America particularly Mm -hmm. to be considered white. Mm -hmm. Part of that contract involved being worse than the other oppressors in order to overcompensate, differentiate yourself from blackness and be white, 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 which is why, you know, a lot of people in the Ku Klux Klan, it's, oh, I'm Irish. You know, I'm Irish, not Russian, not Polish, but Irish specifically. Call but don't phone it in for crones or for omens We're riding out here like Rohan Diogenes but got hope Behold a man or to miss me I'm only foul when I'm floating Freedom is potent The future's in focus 
I have always known that I was, that I, I am black. That's, That's something that I've known. And I was raised in a way where without anyone explicitly, you know, saying it, we, I was raised to go twice as hard. That's the voice of Murley, the musical producer of Energy and a key collaborator and co-conspirator of Denise's, whose presence is very much felt throughout the film. Now, the whole thing is bursting with memorably beautiful images, but the pictures underneath that quote are especially resonant. And appropriately for a film called Energy, Brian's camera appears to have really tuned into its poetic properties in this film, especially while shooting around and on the water. He's certainly shot in enough hot and dusty places to know that when back home, the wind and the rain are your co-stars. So anyway, at this point in the interview, we pressed pause on the recorder and hoisted up our sail before departing the dock at the mouth of the Scariff and making our way back across Loch Derg as dusk fell. I stood on the deck in the half-light with a head full of new information and a notebook of yet-to-be-asked questions burning a hole in my pocket. Thankfully, there would be another opportunity to ask them once we hit land again. The glory of the autumn leaf show that had lit up our outward journey was replaced by a far more muted but equally beautiful scene of house and farmyard lights shimmering through the gloaming from the shoreline on all sides. Always a contemplative sight. And there was much to think about. That line from Denise about it being within our power to dismantle imperialism resonated sharply as I drank it all in and took stock. Deep like water. Several hours later, after a long dinner and having gotten lost and been found again on the back roads around Killaloo, we trooped back into Limerick City, alive to the night and its possibilities for still more conversation. I'll be honest, driving along the Shannon River listening to a playlist by B+, while Denise Chyla adds vocals from the backseat via heaven, is not a journey you ever want to end, really. But come to a close it did at B's house on the Dublin Road, and there, close to midnight, we settled down for part two. There are so many modern truths in this film that its constituent emotional wisdom was something I was keen to find out more about. These things don't just happen, after all. There's a lot of ground covered there Yeah, in 15 minutes. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think we could have got there mm-hmm. if it wasn't for, you know, that that the, the, the sort of speed learning mm-hmm. aspect of, of yeah. the way this has worked. Because, like, we had a lot of opportunity to speak. And then we had a few very significant themes for me that ran through our conversations. Mm-hmm. I think one of the first ones was, like, this notion of leaving flowers at the altar of people who you honor mm. um, and invoking them, invoking their names, invoking their stories, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, uh, what was it? The Sadia Hartman notion of the imaginative, what was it? Reimagining the lives of people. Critical fabulation. Critical fabulation. Critical fabulation. Yes. Thank you. We got Good there Lord. in the end. <laughs> well, the idea being though is that is that is that you you could you you could if you did the job carefully enough yeah. and you allowed certain 
you know, yourself to be able to occupy certain kinds of subjectivities that you could, you would be able to conjure people in a way in their lives in mm-hmm. a way that made, that you know, made a certain kind of narrative sense of, 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 of histories that had erased those kinds of experiences. Yeah. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's very, very strong. Oof. Yeah. Like, and kind of tricky business, really. Yeah. You know? it, is. it requires a certain kind of magical thinking. Magical thinking. Yeah. But, exactly. Yeah. Critical fabulation. Yeah. yeah. There yeah, has yeah. to be a sense of the imagination that you mm. invoke within your criticism mm-hmm. for it to be alive, but also a certain sensitivity because you're dealing with people's real lives. You know, yeah. these are not figures or symbols, these are people with graves. And a big part of the work is having the compassion to respect their individuality mm-hmm. and the notion that they cannot be reworked into something that you want just because you want it to be that way. And it requires a lot of research, you know? And we started by talking about Sarah Bartman because I had a line in Copper Bullet. And that was something that we spoke about extensively, you know? Um, Carrie Mae Weems and Renee Cox and like this notion of blackness and womanhood and agency and the over-sexualization of these things Mm -hmm. within the entertainment industry or just a voyeuristic uh, landscape through which we just see people's bodies as objects, you know. And I started thinking about myself within this frame as well and Mm -hmm. just sort of the connectiveness of like being a woman uh, or red as feminine. Um, being, Sarah Bartman was in Limerick for 10 days in 1812. Yeah. yeah no, I, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, it's good to say that because, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, the people who are listening to this probably mm-hmm. will not yeah. know this, but like it yeah. was, it was something that impacted my heart deeply because like I occupy Elaine in the music industry, um, as a rapper where women who rap are often seen sexually before anything else. You know, mm-hmm. there is an element of, you know, either you are the Madonna or the whore, you know, either you are a very conscious, um, staid and modest type, or you are, you know, squatting with a lollipop in your hands and either way you're vilified or praised for it in Mm -hmm. ways which are very unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And to be sitting in this body and to be thinking about all these themes and walking through Limerick and thinking about Sarah Bartman Um, We had these conversations and it led us into like the second theme, which has followed us, which is like a beautiful shared criticism of Afro-pessimism and the notion that agency can be robbed. You know, the notion that agency is a zero sum game or like a closed loop where like you pursue it, although you'll never reach it. You know, you chase it but you'll never have true autonomy. Mm -hmm. And uh, a conversation that we had is, you know, what's the point in hoping if the conclusion of your thesis statement is that things are hopeless anyway, Mm -hmm. you know, and what do you do in the middle of this? How do you start to think about ways in which we can work out our freedom and redemptive community work without falling into the pitfalls of like closed thinking, thinking that we're being smart and rational. Mm -hmm. Um, this is my personal criticism. I'm not putting this on you, B, because perhaps I'm uh, remembering no. this conversation incorrectly. No. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a number of months of really, really interesting thinking, mm. you know, and like throwing thoughts into a pot together and having this shared kind of like 
personal, critical, emotional, creative sort of like way of looking at the world and reframing things I feel I already know, um, but kind of don't when mm-hmm. someone else picks them up and goes, why do you do this? Mm-hmm. You know, um, tell me about your art practice, you know, and I don't think that these are terms that people use to describe hip hop or rappers mm-hmm. and the work that we do, you know, like nobody really approaches it by saying, tell me about the practice yeah. of your yeah. art, you know, except me, you know, <laughs> or, or unless you're like really, really into lyrics and you want yeah. someone to tell you about the practice yeah, of the technicality, very, rarely. very, very rarely, yeah. you know, and only it's only an honor that's given to a very, very few yeah. People or when and, you're dead or something. Or when you're dead, yeah. you know, and you're a certain kind of rapper. Maybe you occupy a teaching space. Maybe people call you yeah. conscious. Mm-hmm. But this is when you get the privilege of being legitimized yeah. as someone who works yeah. and who has practiced, you know. Yeah. Um, and and this is, you know, following the analogy, following the metaphor, kind of like us being in theater. Yeah. Because um, the last few months of working on this film for me and even this notion of like, what is a director? What is direction? What yeah. direction am I going in mm-hmm. with this work and therefore with my career and, you know, ultimately with my life? What am I doing with myself? What am I going to allow myself to do with myself? This is like being in theater. You know, mm-hmm. this is uh, very literally being in theater and like picking things apart and going at things with a scalpel. And because of that, some of these things that we did together were not always comfortable Mm -hmm. because there's a stretching um, involved in challenging yourself to do something you have never done uh, with someone who you've never worked with, finding a rhythm, um, finding ways with which to speak to each other, um, learning how to do conflict well if it arises um, and not just lean on the nice moments where like things are going swimmingly and you're on the same page anyway. Um, Because, you know, it was, I mean, there definitely, you know, there was definitely Mm. challenging moments, not so much in terms of really um, between us as much as there was, you know, uh Oh, it's going to rain all night (laughs) (laughs) at the people's park. Yeah. And we started Uh, like an hour later than we intended to start. And we went until four in the morning and now it's four in the morning and we still have to shoot in Curachase. And we're about to drive to Curachase to shoot these scenes there. What are we going to do with this chicken? What are we going to do with this chicken? Is it dead in the back of the trunk? I haven't heard it make noise in ages. You know. (laughs) Then you have our stylist, Ella Daly, who happened to keep chickens at home anyway, who's just like, no, the chickens just go to sleep when it's dark. It's like, oh, yeah, so glad we have a chicken expert to remind us and assure us that we... Did that seal the deal? It was okay then? (laughs) Oh, no, it was my Uncle Tony's chicken, man. And... uh, Honestly, man, I, the chicken was—I think it was a holiday for the chicken, man. The chickens don't be getting kept uh, so good, to be honest. Okay. In fairness. I'm so weak. That chicken was terrified. That chicken wasn't all right. Like I was gonna put the chicken on a leash and lead it around at the people's no. park. Exactly. You see, learn to do conflict well. <laughs> Thank you.
opens in a society that's built around the power of words. If you introduce someone from an African tradition where words mean everything, and now suddenly you burst open this kind of like good and evil, black and white, and like all that kind of binary thinking, and it explodes into magic. God, the rain, it glistens in the shots. Like It does. I mean, the thing, I mean, that is the beauty of it is. It's that shiny. The, the, yeah. Bah. Uh, it's gloss it the, and matte. The, the Alan beautiful. Parker uh, imagination when it comes to Limerick. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, was, I was laughing about this last night on the way up to the bell table. Where it was, uh, what do you mean by the Alan Parker? Just the... Well, Alan Parker made Angela's Ashes. Oh, yeah. And the joke around Limerick, of course, is that like, you know, kind of movie could it be like if you had to bring rain machines to Limerick we're out of it <laughs> we didn't have I'm enough so rain was that, was that a machine that was going the last 36 hours turn off the- <laughs> you know what I mean it's like yeah oh my god it's just definitely and I mean that night you know that night in um, in in the people's park stick um, was definitely something out of the Alan Parker imagination I mean it really really rained Mm. immense amount of rain but the beauty of the rain of course is that yeah everything glistens would you have had the umbrellas without the rain which are kind of genius yeah yeah we were the plan was to have the umbrellas the plan was always to have the umbrellas because Um, like you're we were coming from like this is kind of the beauty of like saying that you have this particular reference but also knowing that you're two people with your own references like we talk about musicals uh, mainly because B isn't quite so into them and I'm obsessed. <laughs> um, yeah. But one of the musicals that we mutually love is Singing in the Rain. Yeah. And yeah. there's that one scene where he's dancing in the rain with an umbrella and yeah. just sort of doing the thing. And that's so, it's such a, it's a classic image. But for me in my head, it was also like a, a classic image that can also be upturned. You mm. know, this is space that has never had space for people of color. There are no black people in musicals from this era with iconic, iconic songs that are like revered by people across the world to the extent that singing in the rain is like one of the most like, you know, this is, this is the musical that a lot of people will say when you say, think of a musical. Yeah, it's the go-to musical. Exactly. It's this, or it's like something by Julie Andrews or something Mm -hmm. like that, you know? Um, and, and when I was like there, the reason why we were dancing in the gazebo, me and Merle yeah. is because we no, that were was the joke that night, I think that was the joke. It's yeah. like, Hey, look at us, two black kids walking around in the park with umbrellas in period costume, which was not entirely intentional, but not unintentional. Um, and I wonder, I wonder what people would have thought to see us like this years and years and years Mm. ago you know i wonder where that statue of thomas spring rice like living and breathing what would he think what would he say and it's like this notion that this is the image of like british imperialism also Mm -hmm. like is you know the privilege of ignoring the ailment and the bitterness of the world and the blood under your feet by dancing upon it in ways that deflect from it in ways that like completely detour and uh, take a left turn away from what it is you might have to focus on. Um, and those places, these imaginative spaces, mm. 
where you with your bodies imagine a reality that isn't really true or ignore one do not include black people they do not include brown people they do not include anyone except able-bodied white people actually Mm -hmm. um and there's a frustration in watching this your whole life and admiring it or putting it on a pedestal or even having, you know, no, no other reference with which to engage in color. It is unavoidable. You know, like this is culture. Mm -hmm. This is classics. This Mm. is, this is classic, Mm -hmm. you know, the canon. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that a lot of how we felt shivering in the rain, me in a corset that was slowly constricting (laughs) my ability to breathe was like just this real feeling of being in your body, being uncomfortable doing an uncomfortable thing and then going back and looking at it, that's the footage later and um, putting that particular song underneath it, um, which was the right choice, but not an easy choice for me to make mm-hmm. uh, because yeah, without going too deeply into it, it's a, it's a difficult song. It's a, it's a funeral song. Um, someone in my family had died. My aunt went she recorded songs that they were singing and we put it underneath the, the, the yeah, footage right. of myself and Merle dancing. Yeah. yeah. And, and the song that was being sang is about, you know, resurrection is about, you know, invoking the spirits of the dead uh, wow. to live amongst <clears throat> you um, and, and occupying their lives actually like taking on their names yeah. and their stories and carrying them forward. That was, that was hard. Wow. You know, this, yeah, this is no a hard movie. That. Yeah, yeah, wow. <laughs> it was really hard. It was really difficult Mm. because I think from the outset, like this was a really, really strong part of the film. And I think B felt really, really like sure of it from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, there's the implicate, like what we were talking about earlier, like the notion of of how I'm implicated in the film by virtue Mm -hmm. of, well, this is actually, you know, where I'm from, but Mm -hmm. there's a very strong sense as well. that This film is about where Denise is from, not Mm -hmm. in a, abstract way at all in a very yeah. specific way uh, yeah you know i'm talking about the fa- you know the sort of slight really really fast slideshow of of family photos which i love i yeah. said it to ross yeah, yeah yeah amazing um yeah ross did amazing yeah. um but also you know the 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 film existed as a kind of uh as a dropbox folder for things gleaned from denise's mom's phone mm-hmm. from from clips of political leaders talking from Eartha Kitt interviews and James Baldwin interviews and, and just this kind of scrapbook of ideas of things that seemed significant that potentially, Mm -hmm. and then it was just about like what works Mm -hmm. 
in order for us to have this kind of balance between the personal, the archival, yeah. the, you know, to be mm. able to sort of intimate a kind of story. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if story, sometimes I think of it more of, it's almost like a poem. Mm. Do you Couplets. know what I mean? Like it has, yeah, it has a series of, yeah. you know, the kind of. This is why like the idea of it being a visual mixtape really resonated with yeah. me. Yeah. Cause like when we started talking, I was thinking about ghost notes a lot and about yeah. how you called co- ghost notes a mixtape Yeah, and go bravely was a mixtape. Yeah. And this notion of the mixtape is really like, it seems counterintuitive to a lot of people. Like it seems like an, a notion or a concept yeah. that isn't as important, you know, or understood mm. perhaps. Um, and I think that it's, a really liberating way to consider approaching a body of work mm. actually is the notion that finger painting and not having it all figured out before you approach it is just as valuable an approach to a work as sitting down and plotting things out explicitly mm-hmm. and saying this has to go here and this has to go here, which is brilliant if your mind is working like way mm-hmm. and if you're in that space. Um, but I think that something that myself and B do share is this sort of notion that it's fun to connect the dots, reserve room for more ambiguity, mm-hmm. um, put things together that might frustrate your idea of like what should belong together. Um, maybe deliberately introduce an element of disruption, um, but always stay very exciting to yourself. Like this is the notion of the couplet. This is, you know, wanting to throw a reference to the den with a reference to Sarah Bartman, with a reference to you know, rappers who I love with a Mm -hmm. reference to bell hooks, with a reference to twerking, with a reference to, you know, old chants from home. Mm -hmm. This is, this is fun, you know, like this is actually the work that personally keeps my brain active and excited about writing and exploring different ways of telling stories. Like Mm. I don't, I don't really work chronologically. No, but I mean, it's also the kind of history uh, telling, um, but I think is, 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 you know, has been a part of the work since that for me, at least, you know, since, since I was making work here, you know, it's a sense that, you know, it is possible to look at these places and eulogize space and imagine things across time, imagine things across space, imagine sm- small solidarities that ricochet and, and that don't make sense in a kind of linear fashion. Um, is actually a much more helpful way, allowing yourself to have these kinds of ways of thinking is a much more helpful way to understand the world we live in rather than this kind of rigid, rational, linear kind of way of understanding things. Because music doesn't really work that way. I mean, yeah. it's, you know what I mean? It's yeah, not yeah. like, and to me, music actually is a much more helpful way of understanding history than history writing let's say, yeah, which is, brilliant. you know, broken into this kind of, you know, like these notions of narrative arcs that center individuals, create heroes, do, yeah. just do things that ultimately aren't the way people live really. I mm-hmm. think, you know what I mean? Like, um, so. Wow. That's so great. Yeah. <clears throat> but it, I mean, 
in the end, yeah. I mean, if, if it wasn't fun and if it wasn't fun to watch and if it didn't bristle, mm. then <laughs> we didn't we didn't do the job correctly. Yeah. So so you you're you're caught in this kind of you know, you want to give enough to engage people, you want to make people think, you want mm-hmm. people to ask questions, but then at the same time, you want to, yeah, you want to somehow um frustrate. I, I like how, how Denise uses this word, but the notion is fr- frustrating certain the, the kind of exceptions, the kind mm-hmm. of easy, mm. you know, if you're coming to this film with the notion that you're going to have a bunch of answers at the end, it's going to frustrate you. Yeah. yeah. What mm. it's given you is a bunch of questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And th- yeah, that's, that's been, it. you know, that was the idea really in the yeah. beginning was to try to, mm-hmm. if it, if it started to feel like we were, you know, it was becoming too da- didactic or it was mm. like, Mm. Oh, there's like a little Easter egg in here and it's a riddle and you just have to figure it out. This is the mm. perfect metaphor. But mm. that also was, mm. you know, this is some something far more like allegorical in the kind of contemporary sense or whatever. So Yeah. And allegorical, it certainly is. There's a brilliant line which Mark Cousins uses in the history of film about the tunnel at the end of the light. And every time I watched this film, I picked up on something new and found myself chasing up those leads in search of more knowledge and information. A measure of its impact is the unfamiliarity of these spaces it opens up. New territory, higher ground. Like all great works of art, it puts light in your eyes, but the illumination merely acts as a guide to lead you elsewhere. Leaps of the imagination, small solidarities and magical thinking. If I can make a confession, right? I think that I use this concept of magic as a philosophy to discuss the energy and the dynamics of dreaming and how it connects us. I I have this love affair um, with the notion of fantasy. Um, because I believe that it is a powerful tool that we disparage and don't consider enough as an opportunity for us to grow and to understand ourselves. Because I believe that we, we, we put our, we put ourselves deeply where our dreams are. Um, if you see what we idolize or aspire to often, that is who you want to be, which is kind of who you are, yeah. you know? And if you idolize this sort of Arthurian approach to life where, you know, there is a chosen one, where there is one true king, where there is, you know, a narrative that somehow surrounds you and you have to shoulder the weight of it and you have to defeat the great evil and there is one great evil and it's conveniently one person who just did a bad thing and is completely irredeemable then you end up with narratives like the ones we have right now, yeah. like what B was saying. Then you end up with Conflict, like... constant kind of like... Yeah, well, you end up with like this sort of white supremacist notion of like the golden haired individual who's yeah. going to save everything and yeah. who must Savior, be yeah. received with worship and adulation if we're going to move forward. And moving forward is a process of allowing this one person 
to actualize and we all fall into secondary roles around their narrative. And I think that when I think about um, the people who have impacted me and the people who we invoke in this film, there is a great deal of belief that is necessary for anything to change. There is a great deal of belief that's necessary with waking up in the morning and singing songs with your sisters to revive a dying language. Belief necessary to build a power station, a hydroelectric power station in the middle of Ardnacrusha in Ireland at the beginning of a state, you know. There's a great deal of imagination necessary for you to go with your free, your three friends into a conference with British Parliament and not ask, but demand that secession be implemented immediately and call out your oppressor to their faces. And it is this, that it's through the way people behave that you see that when mountains move, it's usually because people are moving together. Mm. It's usually because you find someone and like, you know, if you ever watch the rest of that interview, or I don't know if you have later on, um, Dr. Hastings Banda goes on to say, you know, I came here with these two men and we have our chiefs outside the door. And if we don't get what we want, I'll leave you to imagine what's next. Mm -hmm. And you have this very interesting moment with a reporter who is almost trying to back him into a corner, mm -hmm. trying to admit him to get him to admit that he would use violence mm. to um, achieve his ends. Um, and what he did instead was call out the notion that a person who could do such a thing would think that they are cultured and that they are intellectually superior. And this all requires imagination. You have to be able to think about these things, dream about these things and inhabit them and maybe examine our dreams to see what it is we're idolizing so mm. that we can have better things now and not in an imagined future. Dr. Banda, you are speaking for the three, I believe. On what basis are you going to this conference? Secession and constitution for each of the territory that would result in a government, a government of the majority, by the majority, in the interest of all. Are you Not government by a few white men who claim to be civilized and educated do you feel that uh, the white delegates to the conference aren't civilized and educated? They say they are, but that does not give them the right to exclude us from the government of our own respective countries. But you are being included in the government of your country very soon. That's not enough. They, we had to struggle for that. For many, many years they have shut us down like dogs. Now I want to be quite blunt and clear. No missing words about that. And you want the breakup of this federation now? No question about it. I don't have the privilege of mediocrity or some foolishness. I'm married to my excellence, so I just don't have time for bail threats. Uh, my responsibility is to remind you of the futility of ever trying me. Just because I'm nice don't mean that I'm not designed to right now on anything that comes to my people, my family, my dreams, my purpose, my history, my genome. I'm unlikely to be that sweet. Don't push me, baby. I've given you warning. I came in to rap and everything else is getting so boring. I make it look good when I entertain, but I'm not performing. They call me a king because I'll bury your rules and leave you in mourning. Treat it like a calling. 
I don't do moments, do momentum. Then you come into my mentions, but this gives you hypertension. Stream my music, baby. You're welcome. You are not like me. When I think about energy specifically, um, it leads me back to this notion that we cannot discard this thing. It can't be child's play. You know, like we cannot leave this to continue to be the remit of, you know, rich white people and their children who have the time and the energy to have dreams because they're not constantly fighting for their survival. We cannot leave that to be the only place where people are able to imagine and actualize because this is actualization. Mm. You know, the ability to sit down and imagine yourself outside of your labor and just dream. Um, and I think that this is the right time to say something like this, yeah. you know, in a country that is like, that has a very unique relationship to a conversation around, around race, yeah. around history, around power and energy, around its development into a state, around foreign policy, around so many things in a pandemic. You know, like there are, there are many things that I think are on all of our hearts to say. And I'm really grateful that, uh, that B would come all the way from LA back into his, his home, his childhood home to say them with me. And together they say a whole lot. The way those different strands intertwine is the story of the film. It's a real feat of the imagination, the manner in which questions about race, history, power and energy are woven together with such composure. Feels like something that could only have been achieved by collaboration, fueled by considerable shared intent. This has taught me really deeply that there is always a reason for everything. And yeah. like, you know, it, you just need to find your way in. Then you get the hook and you stop seeing the world as a series of stories which are compartmentalized and mm -hmm. segmented outside of each other mm -hmm. with no way to touch. You know, it's not like we're picky children all inhabiting a plate and you're mashed potatoes over there and I'm the meat over here and someone else is the cabbage and none of the food ever touches. The truth is like, we're all like involved in this sort of like casserole, mm -hmm. but we think as though we live in our own segment of the dish, you know, and that's a real that's flaw. Really Thank you. Yeah. But this is a real flaw in the way even we tell history, even the way we think sure. about ourselves mm -hmm. as people, as citizens of like a global community, you know, like an I think that this is sort of a really rich time to start making these connections and start like jumping over bad pedagogy. I mean, it's the, I was talking about it at the Sugar Club, I don't know if you remember, but the fact that Luke Gibbons was there, yeah. the fact that Luke Gibbons was the person that passed me Orientalism yeah. by Edward Said back in the day. Mm -hmm. And in the first couple of chapters of, of Orientalism, he talks about this, what he calls classical epistemology. Mm. And the, being, the idea being is that Europe goes to the rest of the world and it goes, you are what we aren't. Yes. 
Mm. Right? Yeah. So immediately we start to understand the world by differences. Yeah. It's like, well, you have a mad curly head on you. Mm -hmm. I have, this is a perfectly formed limerick head. (laughs) Therefore, (laughs) you're, but it's this absolutely mistake, Mm. the absolute mistake, Mm. the wrong formulation. Mm. And sort of sidebar from this over the past few years, uh, um, through the work of a scholar that that, I, that that was originally studying, you know, you have this beautiful situation you teach in university sometimes where you, you have people that study under you that you end up learning more from right. and you feel like you gave them. But I had a, a, doc, a doctoral student that I worked with who spent a lot of time thinking about this idea of apophenia. Apophenia is like a psychological term for people that see connections between things that don't exist. And it's it's actually considered an early part of schizophrenia. It's an, it was considered in the, you know, up, really up until the 70s as an early symptom of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. It's people that see links between things. Now, of course, I know that that's also leads you to the kind of bad uh, Illuminati conspiracy theory things we can think of. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is a kind of creativity that allows you to create connections between things that there should be connections between right. that actually have real, you know, you start to imagine connections between things, affinities yeah. between things, mm-hmm. Yeah, hearing things in music that you go like, wow, that really reminds me of something else only to come to find that in fact, yes, yeah. there was a bunch of sailors mm-hmm. that would go there because it's a route, a whole other way. You wouldn't even think of the world like a, like a Bob Quinn way of thinking of the world, right. yeah. which allows you then to see connections that somehow history doesn't accommodate. Mm. Yeah. And for me, that's that's the that's the gift of Orientalism. Really, is yeah. a way to undo the kind of Western paradigm of understanding the world only by what makes us different. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It is no longer an issue. Zimbabwe is independent. Mozambique is independent. South Africa is independent, and all the other countries around it—they are all independent. So they should give back my land. Come and fight me. I am there and I'm ready for you. I am ready to face my president. If those are the directives that you are being given, please come and face me. I am there. said it extremely eloquently I think that the failure we talk a lot about failures of empathy and not enough about its success Mm. and I think that a great success of empathy is the ability to make these links you know and part of that is to start as a human being who can simultaneously value their individual unique experience and expression in a way that does not involve self-betrayal and as a part as a member of a whole uh, who has a community that can look after them who they also participate in looking after and I think that you look at um, particularly you know coming up in churches we always talk about uh, communal thinking versus individualism you know Um, 
particularly coming from African churches, where like there's a certain amount of culture that we're also practicing uh, amongst each other as well as faith. And then, you know, we we talk about explicitly the disruption and the culture shock of operating within Western societies that value the individual when you're taught and you come from a culture which values the communal, you know, and the, the quickest route to expressing this that I had when I was very young was this sort of like Mulan trope of like, you'll bring honor to us all, or are you going to go off and do your own thing and fight for your father? You know, um, what is selfishness here? What is betraying your community? What is fighting for your community? You know, if I do end up not marrying and not wanting to have children and living the kind of lifestyle that brands me, whatever you want to call me, um, but ultimately do good, who is it that I've betrayed, you know? Um, and I think that like part of part of living that also needs to be reaffirmed for all of us is that you do have first a responsibility to not pour from an empty cup and to put your gas mask on first, your oxygen mask on. You need to wear it, um, which involves pursuing a certain kind of truth and satisfaction and peace so that you're able to sense places where you're, you can acknowledge someone enough and have the capacity to make room for stories that are not being told around you. Um, and, and in this way, you look after the individual, you look after that one person, you look them in the eye, you acknowledge them as a human being, you give credence and legitimacy to their existence and their story. And in this act of decency, even, there is something really empowering that can happen, um, which encourages both people to continue to make those rooms. You know, it is more likely that you're going to do something or express a kindness towards someone after someone has expressed compassion towards you, as opposed to, you know, going through life, getting bricks thrown at you the entire time mm -hmm. and having to try to give when you're so exhausted and depleted, you know, something I hear people say as a joke very often, that's, you know, kind of funny if it's delivered correctly, but usually just a cause for concern is that they hate people, mm -hmm. you know, like, oh man, I hate people. Like, I do not like people, you know, I just, if I could be a hermit, um, and yet at 3am, if you find them on Twitter or Instagram, they're there, you know, quoting Drake in the captions of their stories <laughs> and expressing true. how lonely they are. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. and, and we are in, a layered pandemic and one of those layers has been extreme and profound loneliness mm -hmm. and the anxiety that comes with dwelling in existential places for too long without having anyone to look at you and say, it's all right. You're okay. You know, um, I don't, necessarily think that it's right for us to idolize the people who came before us. Um, I, I think that my relationship to Kaunda will always be very different from 
um, the older generation in my family because I have the benefit of hindsight in a way that they didn't, you know. And perhaps there are things that I agree with and some things that I disagree with. And in the end, this too is beautiful because in this way too, we see that we are more than the sum of our mistakes. You know, like each one of us has the capacity to do something profound or many things perhaps which are profound, some of which may never be recognized on a global stage and to not have to worry about our humanity interrupting the significance of what it is we're able to do, you know? And this too is like to quote from the August Green film um, for Optimistic, like, you know, it's not about the challenge, but what you do in the face of the challenge. It's not that you don't make mistakes. It's that your mistakes don't make you, you know, you are an individual, you have a community, you can move. love that idea of it not being about the challenge but what you do in the face of it that counts and I think it's fair to say that this effort by Denise and B plus is a good example of what can be done in response to the intense trials these challenging times present us with taking notice of and honoring their supreme endeavor in that regard is the least we can do blessed are the makers that's how we feel I think it's also worth reiterating what Denise said about making room for stories that are not being told, because that's really the crux of the matter here. The freshness of their approach has a lot to do with the fact that they are breaking new ground with this work. Seeing as this series is concerned with every aspect of making, before closing I wanted to get some thoughts from an artist of such vast experience as Brian Cross about that age-old creator's conundrum the process of reinvention. The theory is, is that each subject allows you to reinvent the practice to suit the subject, right? But of course, as you'll notice, there are birds flying out of trees in the August Green film as there are birds flying out of trees in the, you know, energy film. There are things that obviously there are threads. There are things that you lean into. There's kinds of iconography that you make sense. There's kinds of ways I like to see people presented. I like to see people doing things. I like to see certain kinds of joy. There are, there's repetitions that are kind of a stamp that you only notice afterwards. Yeah. In the, yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, but the theory does still hold in the sense that the kind of film that this ended up being, um, relative to the kind of film Stony Hill to Addis is, or the film about the worker center in Williamsburg is, or, you know, the kind of film that the video from Midnight in a Perfect World is, yeah. or the Timeless is, I mean, in truth, yeah. I mean, it, there are different sets of processes that, and you do get into this, yeah, there is a kind of, of mildly ecstatic place you get to where every, yeah, where like everything seems to fit. Yeah. Um, We left that place a little bit, <laughs> you know, a while ago for me anyway, and it became, 
Well, because you go into the stage of about finishing. Yeah, right. And then there's that tension at that end. Where it's uh, like, there's that ending then where it's like... <gasps> even, even before the last screening or your last screening, you've still got to occupy a space where it's it's enjoyable. And, you know, as you said, yeah. it has to t- hit all the triggers at the last moment yeah. after going through the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, I'll be honest. I mean, it, you know, I still look at, the, you know, the, the films that we showed last night, for example. I mean, I'm, yeah. I still see things yeah. in those films that I wish yeah. I would have done differently. I wish I, you know, it's easy to call them mistakes. I don't know if they're necessarily mistakes, but things that I... Creases. Creases. Yeah. That I feel like, hmm, yeah. Um, and certainly I'm at the stage with energy where I'm still not, there's a bunch of things that I'm, uh, you know. Yeah. I don't feel quite as much pressure, funnily enough, because I've, there's, I also feel like there's not, it's not all those decisions aren't on me mm-hmm. entirely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which one specifically? No, no, yeah, no, yesterday we were here and we were having an argument about the, um, the subtitles, right, which, right. you know, is this kind of controversial part of the film. Which yeah. Some, you know, some folks in our kind of, in our larger group were like, apps. I mean, actually in general, people were largely, super supportive and got it straight away like what was going on me know? too yeah um but there was other folks that were like you know what denise is saying is so important and it's so strong that this is taking away you know it's it's diminished i i just want to be able to concentrate on what she's saying yeah we should clarify that in there's subtitles with a different text yeah what's denise yeah. saying there's yeah, a yeah. The, the unreliable narrator that's the way we've been talking the about. unreliable narrator yeah right. yeah um and amazing you know, even yesterday, you know, we were having this decision and I felt like there was a line. I was like, Meh. it's too meta. We can let it go. Like it's, it's, it doesn't need to be there. And then Denise pointed out something is like, no, look, watch the next shot, which is the shot of the swans mm-hmm. swimming in the Shannon. And it, and it's, and it was like, ding, you know, it was like ding in so many ways, you know, mm. Irish Irish mythology yeah. is, yeah. you know what I mean? Like literally, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm having those memories, you know, I, and I was like, of course, of course. Because we come from different perspectives, different creative corners, what you see as a mistake, I see as kind of miraculous sometimes. Mm. Which is kind of what, what you saw yeah. with the swans. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. yeah, or, you know, maybe what I see as... A mistake B will look at and see significance in, you know, like what I don't understand, he'll point out a thread in when my wig line is off and he's like, do you want to fix that? I'm taking a picture of you. I'm just kind of like, no, well, this is who I am in this moment. I'm wearing a wig. Everything is drag. I'm not really ashamed of that, you know? And and that's kind of a that's a really pretty liberating. Cool... I have to be honest, man. Mm. I, this was another thing about 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 working with Denise that was kind of for me coming from you know working there. Yeah, these are the kinds of permissions that you generally don't get. You yeah. know what I mean? It just operates different. It does operate operate off a different kind of axis. Yeah, and it was very nice actually. I mean, you know, it was like one of those things um, to f- to feel free to just just fire away. Just, let's just yeah. figure it out. And I think in your case, like, you know, I was never photographed by somebody who kept talking the whole time. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it's just like, yeah, because there was something to be said. You know, but anyways, yeah. 
it's been it's been yeah it's been a real learning proper learning well um did you did trust fall your word yeah, yeah. <laughs> denise so many learnings and such an array of takeaways from this film and these conversations I hope it's been as illuminating for you as the whole process of discovering and digging down deep into it has been for me that's certainly our intention with this series the whole idea of bringing you closer to how makers make is our way of fortifying belief in the inherent value of such endeavours. This is God's work, after all. And just for good measure, I'm going to assign my new favourite word, trustful, to that sentiment. We'll be back with more in-depth We Are The Makers investigations in April 2022, courtesy of Solus Nua. Our thanks to Denise Chyla and B+, not just for co-directing this inspiring film, but for their generosity in affording me so much time in discussing it with them. And of course, thank you for listening. Almost as strong as our belief in the power of art and the merits of making is our faith in word of mouth as a means of spreading the good news all about it. So, permission granted. Trust falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling on not-so-deaf ears, both here on land and out there, all at sea. So long now. by Denise Chyla, available on Bandcamp. We Are The Makers was written and presented by Donald Deneen, edited and produced by Ian Cudmore, with original music by Ulton O'Brien. This quarterly series was commissioned by Silas Nua in Washington, D.C. Even if I quit tomorrow, this...